Hello and welcome to Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. We are your hosts, Vidas Pinkavichus and Oshamut Zeta Pinkavichin. We've been mastering secrets of organ playing for more than 20 years and sharing them on this blog since 2011. On this show, which we create from our home in Vilnius, Lithuania, we strive to help you grow in every area of organ playing, including practice, technique, repertoire, sight reading, hymn playing, improvisation, composition, music theory, harmony, and many others. Our hope is to help you become a complete musician, or what we call as total organist, a program which we have created to help you reach your dreams faster than you would do on your own. If you are new here, we invite you to subscribe to receive free updates of this blog at organduo.lt. By subscribing, you will also receive free video on how to master any organ composition and 10-day organ playing mini course. And now let's go to the podcast for today. Hi guys, this is Vidas and we're starting podcast number 489 of Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. Today I'm going to talk with an excellent organist from Australia uh, whose name is uh, Pastor de la Sala and he is an organist uh, at the Sacred Heart Church in Mosman. And uh, it's very exciting uh, to share with you this story, how I came to know him because of this platform Steam, where um, Pastor is participating in our weekly Secrets of Organ Playing uh, contest, submitting his videos. And uh, because of the recommendation of our friend uh, James Flores, also Australian organist, He's now a Steamian, a part of Steam, Steam family, and uh, regularly submits his videos. So this is how I came to know uh, Pastor and decided to get to know him even better through today's, um, you know, conversation. Thank you so much, Pastor. I know you are busy uh, traveling uh, from Australia to Singapore and also to Europe now. So I'm going to uh, ask you all kinds of questions. So thank you so much and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, so, uh, Pastor, let's start uh, first of all uh, with your nice story about how you first fell in love with the organ. Do you remember? Oh, yes. Well, back in 1969, I was at my school, which is St. Aloysius College. Now, if you look at um, photographs of Sydney, standing from where the Opera House is, you look across, there's a very large college, College on the Harbour. That's where I was at school, and the Jesuits were the teachers there, very strict. And in 1969, they installed a very small four-rank uh, unit organ. And it got the better of me. I thought, I must see about this. But at the same time, a cousin of mine was being christened at Sacred Heart Church. It's 1970 I'm talking about. And I thought, I'd love to play that organ. It's an old English organ with beautiful painted pipes up in the gallery. So I knocked on the door at the presbytery and I said to Father, Father, can I please play the organ? And, you know, very seriously said, right but as long as you don't blow it up and I said oh, I won't blow it up I'm sorry I won't I will be very careful so he gave me the key to the organ and I went up there it's a single manual organ seven speaking stops coupler 
and um, one of those old-fashioned trigger swells. Well, that was wonderful, mechanical action. So the first organ I ever played was mechanical action. And the first swell pedal I ever came across was a lever swell, not this accelerator type. I like the old swell pedals. I can actually work them and then I find them much more expressive. Anyway, uh, I played and then at school, I asked the priest I could play the organ. So he'd give me the key. So before I get my bus home, I would go up to the chapel, run up there, unlock the organ, play it. I must have sounded terrible at the time. I didn't know anything about it. And the priest wrote in my report to my parents saying, look, he's got talent there. Please get him organ lessons. So I started learning when I was in third year high school. So about two years had elapsed since my first experience in the organ. And I learned. Um, so I'd have afternoon lessons and I was learning piano at the same time. I'd learned piano many years earlier, first with an old nun who was in the 90s. And then I learned from another teacher, very strict one, and uh, that sort of shook me up a bit, but um, I had the organ as well. So you can imagine in 1972, playing the organ in front of students who knew nothing about it, there was a lot of teasing. And I thought, okay, I thought, darn you, I'm like this, I'm doing it, I don't care what you do, it's me. So I stuck to my guns and, and you know, secretly they were ad admiring, but they, of course I couldn't show it. I'll be learning works by Bach, some of the early English repertoire. And then I did that as far as university time. Then I stopped. And um, by that time, I was organist at a little church called St. Philip Neri Northbridge. Because at the university, one of the professors was actually conducting music as a hobby. And he said, we need an organist there on a Sunday at eight o'clock. So I said, OK, I'll do that. So I had my first organ job around 1979 or thereabouts. Also, actually, no, could have been in the late 18, 1970s. So I, I was playing along there. And then after a while, about 10 years later, I, a friend of mine was taking lessons from a well-known organ teacher, Norman Johnston, whose teaching pedigree goes back to César Franck back in France. Yes. And I thought, I must, I must resume this. He's doing things. So I wrote, rang him up. And I'm um, a very, very, very self-effacing Frenchman from Numia. And of course, okay, we'll revise your works and we'll go from there. I wanted to learn the French repertoire. That was really what, what hit me. At the same time, I had at the back of my mind, I want to play harpsichord. And I had a small harpsichord for a, a 17th birthday present. So I had that in the background and that came later on. So I had to juggle all these instruments. So I learned the organ properly again, 1980s thereabouts. And I got my ATCL from Trinity College, then LTCL because people like letters on pages, so I got that. And um, I started exploring the French repertoire, playing the Bach trio sonatas, uh, the old French repertoire. My organ teacher was actually quite scathing. He said, oh, with Couperin, you set it and leave it. In other words, you draw the stops out and play. And I was fascinated. I must play these pieces on the original instrument. So when I'm traveling, I would write to the various churches and I'd be given access. Uh, for example, uh, the Church of Saint Christophe in um, in Udon, in, in outside of Paris, a 1734 Clicquot organ. Yes, uh, Alexandre. I played that French classical organ the first time. I and the funny thing is, I missed the train to go out the first time. I thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to miss this out. So I rang the fellow, and I actually speak French, which is very handy. And I said, I've missed the train. He said, Oh, don't worry, we'll get the next one, but. We'll make sure you get back because that's the last one back. So I thought, okay, we'll get that train out. I met the old man who was in his 80s 
and his name was uh, Henri Paris, spelled Paris, and it's Monsieur le Général. Uh, he was a general during the war, and he was one of these very old-fashioned French people who had this passion for the organ, and he played this little clico, three manual, only about 16 stops, and my mind was blown when I heard, this is a French organ. The reeds just exploded, and I thought, nothing like the English-sounding instruments. So I was looking at repertoire for an instrument, and I thought, this is my instrument. I'm mad about the French classical repertoire. People think it's not much. On the paper, it looks nothing, but when you play it, there's so much in it, a huge dimension, you can't imagine it unless you're playing the real instruments. So I've done all that. I've probably covered a lot of ground here and I'm probably going all over the place, but that was in the back of my mind. So I've recorded things of my own playing. I've played a number of French classical organs, Versailles Chapel, which has um, been reconstructed. That's wonderful. I was so excited, I trembled all the way up the stairs and played it. I rang Monsieur Chapuis one night and he said in his very elegant voice, very slowly, yes, you are most welcome. And he had his assistant show me in there. So that was another thing, marvellous instrument. And I've played Poitiers Cathedral. I met the old organist, Jean Albert Villa, who was there for 50 years. So I've met some of the very old people. And he, was, he told me the story. He started there uh, 50 years ago. And people said, why do you want to play this 18th century organ? We've moved on from there. He basically rediscovered all this. At the same time, you get other people playing the famous Cavalier Col organs, and as in uh, Saint Saint and Toulouse. And I met the organist there, Louis Fonvieille, who was Vienne's last living student. Mm. And I just translated into English the uh, corrections of the Pièce de Fantasie. Um, I was collaborating with someone at home, but I did mainly the lion's work, as you will say. And uh, it's actually Olivia Latry's work, I translated it. And Roland Smith in America incorporate that as one of the appendices of his book on Louis Vienne. So if you see the book on Vienne, I'm in there somewhere. Wonderful. So I help people write, I, I help people write their books. I don't, look, I, look, I always believe if you have information, you don't hold on to it jealously. Other people might like to know it as well. And there's a famous story about the, uh, the Louis Couperin organ book. Do you know the Louis Couperin organ book at all? Yes. It was in the hands of Guy Oldham since 1958. And it's basically the missing link between Jean Titoulouse and uh, François Couperin. Mm -hmm. And you can see François Couperin's fingerprints there. He gave out the manuscript bit by bit and people were copying and then he would hang on to the whole thing. And eventually, I think David Moroni went out there and edited the whole lot and we see it. One editor in Paris for Edition Triton, I won't mention his name, but you can probably look him up. He's, I said, now tell me the source of this. And he said, I'll tell you one day. And I thought, aha. He's got copies of copies. And um, anyway, that one came out of 30 pieces. Then the rest of 70 pieces came out later. So that's a, it's a marvellous thing, the French classic repertoire. But there's basically two, uh, two parts of the French classical repertoire. Pre-1730, that's Couperin, and after that, 730, from, from Corrette onwards. So you have the classical, and then you have the post-classical. Then you go to the transition, and you're going right up into the early romantic. So it's an interesting progression. And um, of course, you, you, you can't go through that music without coming through Boeli, uh, who was a, a great champion of Bach and not very popular. I've seen his organ in Paris, which I believe now is restored. Um, but uh, I've had a great affinity for the French organs from the 17th right through to the 21st century. The most recent one I ever played was in uh, Charol in Burgundy. 
-hmm. And that was an organ by Blumenroder, who's actually made the French organ builders stand up and wow, what's this? Four manual organ in this tiny village, in a, in a major basilica. And they've got a big festival there, uh, which is run by uh, Lois Belton. I think she's passed it on now, but there was something incredible there. And there's a lovely story about that organ. It cost a lot of money. And I was actually in contact with the organ builder. Uh, and he said, look, we would have had other things done, but we ran out of money. For example, a lot of French organs would have what they call ravalement, which is the extended pedal. I missed bottom A on that. I thought, okay, it's not there, but he did other things. Very interesting. And uh, he was very economical with the pipes on the Récy, which were then borrowed to the, to the or coupled to the Grand Dog. So he would save money there. But if you look up over the, the facade, you'll see a, a two euro coin piece. Now, why is that there? An old man, I could have been a beggar, came in and he, he knew the value of music and said, here is some money for the organ two euros. It's like the widow's mite. So this little coin is sitting up there mounted in the case as a gift from a person who didn't have any money, but he gave that as a contribution. Rather nice story. Wow, that's quite a story, uh, Pastor. You are a really excellent storyteller. I couldn't even blink when you were talking. So excited. So I now... I have Yes, uh, I just wanted to ask you, uh, yeah, on, but uh, a little bit uh, more in depth, what fascinated you about uh, the French organs, how you got involved and why? Well, the repertoire was unusual mm -hmm. and I thought I'm playing it on instruments, which um, we have mainly English instruments. Okay, you might get some German ones, but I want to hear how it sounded for real. Of course, I heard the recordings. I've heard the Chapuis recordings, the Isoir recordings. And the first classical French organ music I ever heard on a CD was, um, I think it was Chapuis playing the Clairambeau at Poitiers Cathedral. Yes. I went to Poitiers, I met at Villar, and he, there's another story there. He um, presented the organ to me, and of course, as you know, it's got a magnificent acoustic in there, and the pedal goes to bottom A. He improvised on tone, I think it was on the third tone there, because that's in that, like A minor to us. And he had all the various colours, cornets, he had flutes and all this, and he's improvised this. I thought, I've got to do this one day. I sit down and I do try and, I'm not a very good improviser, but I know what I, like, what I like there, and I try to improvise by copying that. And in fact, in his Not Personnel, uh, uh, Chapuis says, the great masters used to play up there and the other ones, these, the students would sit down and they'd listen. So by listening to what the great masters do, you emulate them and then you make it your own style. My teacher said, you go and interpret pieces. There's this, these parameters within what's correct in that style. He says, so-and-so does it this way, this one does it that way. Go in between and make it your own rather than saying you must do it this way. I know there's some, the Germanic ones say you must do it. I, know, I go, I'm not that Germanic minded. I, the French would suit me better. They're much more, a bit of a laissez-faire. And um, right, there's this and that, you go in between. So you have the right parameters. Mind you, you get to Jean Guillou, who's something totally different altogether. Uh, and I met him once too, very unusual character. Wonderful. Uh, uh, Pastor, have you ever played this organ that uh, Jean Guillou uh, devised uh, at uh, Alpe d'Huez? No, I've seen it. It's a very unusual one. 
but uh, Guillou was full of experimentation and, and colors. See, with, with the French classical organ, there's color. And I think he's taken the extension to that. He's actually gone further with color. And I remember talking to Olivier Latry once. Um, in fact, that's another story. I was the first Australian to meet him at home and I was driving him around and I was interpreting when he couldn't speak English. So he told me the story about this Abduess and another organ. He says he put on a Gostiers, a three and a fifth, but there was no 16 on the manual. But why did he do that? Well, my teacher would say, Guillou is Guillou. And when I went up to Saint Eustache, he had the Van den Heuvel organ. I went up there, I looked at the, oh, I said, what's this Grand Neuvienne there? And this and that. And he just drew it and he was playing some, you know, I thought, oh, okay, he's using it. He was doing some of the uh, music by um, Varco Valdi for manuals, uh, those concertos. And the style was very different. He, he was very radical. But I think he had his own idea. It, to him, colour and that style was a, a whole new level. And if you hear Latrina playing the last recorded music he did at Notre Dame, you're hearing Bach played in a way that the purists would not accept. But there again, you say, right, he's consistent in that. That's his style. And it's valid because he's consistent in that. Though I wouldn't normally play it myself. So the organ has evolved some ways. And I think Guillou was trying to look at himself as evolving the organ beyond what his ancestors had done. So he's going right through there. I think he was successful that way. Mm -hmm. And um, he stuck to his guns and he kept his style and, um, and he composed accordingly. He was a very fine composer. He wrote very difficult music. I don't say I could play any of his things, mm -hmm. but um, he, he was a very good composer and he had a certain vision. Yeah, Oshra and I had the privilege to play one of this uh, wonderful organ at San um, Duez, uh, which is uh, uh, designed by by Jean Guillou. It's uh, shaped like a palm, like very very similar to a palm, and actually it sounds like in a cathedral. Although it only has two manuals, very powerful reads, but only uh, very gentle, also very colorful, powerful, very great ensemble. And it's interesting because it's a German organ, Kloiker uh, instrument but sounds like a French cathedral. We had a great time there. The, the buildings are very important in France too. If you, if you play in the cathedrals, I think of Strasbourg, I had to climb a hundred stairs to go there to play, twice out onto the roof. And I heard an organist play a recital one night. I was talking to a, a French colleague and, and um, he's actually from the provinces. And I said, gosh, you're playing fast. He said, ah, les Parisiens, the Parisians, they rush off like mad. I won't say who it was because there was this eight second reverberation in the building. Now, when you're playing in a building that big, you really have to put the brakes on and you articulate. One thing I noticed when uh, Jean-Albert Villard was playing, I said, he's making this organ breathe somehow. What's he doing? He's obviously lifting his hands up. Like when you play the harpsichord, you've got to make it breathe. Otherwise it sounds very static and awful. Um, so he was doing things to make the organ have that extra dimension, but respecting the acoustic. I think a lot of organists don't often hear the building which they're playing. It'll turn into one mash mm -hmm. and you have to raise and articulate according to the building. The building's the best stop on the organ, as, as um, Gavaya Cole would say. So study the building. Yes. Listen to the When you play an organ, you, I suppose you have to go through the registers one by one. What's my colour palette? What's this sound going to do here? And, and if you're doing something at Notre Dame de Paris, there are a lot of registers there and they don't give you too much time. And one, they actually cut my time short without even 
warning me one night. So I, I went up there one night and they made you record the thing too in one take. Now, when I do those recordings, I don't do everything in one take. And I thought, my goodness. And I sat up there one o'clock in the morning thinking, what am I doing this for? <laughs> it, was, it, it was a great trial. And uh, so I was trying to get a metro home, so I don't exist, so I had to walk home. And I had to, a friend of mine was there turning my pages, so I got my concierge to get him a taxi. So, so anyway, but you're doing these things in these buildings, hearing what the organ does, and every building is so different, every instrument is so different. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing. It, the discovery is all over the place. You don't ever tire of it. There's everything, something very new all the time there. Besides uh, adjusting to those wonderful acoustics, uh, what are some challenges for you uh, when you play those organs? Well, the challenges would be trying to find the right colours, uh, the registrations, and you've got limited time. So I thought, what's going to work well here? You do have an idea what you want. And if you're at Notre Dame, for example, there's a lot of variety there. They've got another division, the, the resonance, which they've added. I thought, what am I going to use here? What aren't I going to use? You don't use everything. In fact, that's a very powerful organ up there. When you bring the shamards on, for example, I liken it to being hit in the back by a machine gun. They are so powerful. When I was playing up a fairly big registration, the maintenance person there said, oh, and there's more to come if you really want it. I said, really? I don't think I'll do that. It's deafening up there, absolutely deafening. And if you go up there, you'll notice that the arches have been covered in. And that was Vila Le Duc who actually decided to cover those in because the sound was escaping. Mm -hmm. So the idea is to thrust that big instrument through the nave of that very large cathedral. It's a very large volume in there. Mm -hmm. right. And... Um, it's, it's uh, again, you've got to know how to play the instrument, otherwise it'll turn terrible. And if you're playing a French classical organ, you've got no, no um, thumb pistons, you're hand registering. If you're playing a can organ, as I did in Bourges Cathedral, no hand pistons, and you're playing a French classical suite, you have to change registrations between where I suppose the chart would be, but you've got to find where they are. And the stops aren't always in the same numerical order. Villa told me of Poitiers, that Clico designed this organ that you could draw a registration with two drawers each side and you've got it. And you might find them all over the place. They're not in a logical order, but they're logical in the sense of a registration pattern. Uh-huh, yes. So all the eight foots aren't in one place. And, and you'll find one stop on the upper manual, it's at the top here. Sometimes they're on the sides out here, like a potier. And if you're playing a Zilberman organ in uh, Ebersminster or in Mamoutier, you've got to turn behind you on the rue positive or the positive de dos. It's behind you where the stops are. If you're in Holland, I suppose, you've got to go over the head. <laughs> they're all over the place. But you've got to get your navigation right for your console. Yes. How much time uh, uh, do you need when you prepare for a performance on these organs when you haven't, haven't played before? Right, Notre Dame, I had a start at 8 o'clock and I was out by midnight. And the next night they kept me waiting an hour because I had another concert on. Mm -hmm. So I had to work everything out very quickly. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. my friend turning my pages said, oh, you've seen this console before? I said, no, I've seen the old Notre Dame console, the one Cochere played. And I played, I played two recitals there solo there. Not many people from my country have done that, and I'm, I'm very happy. Um, I was, it was an invitation by Olivier Latry, which was very kind of him. Um, it really opened my eyes playing from that size and in such a prestigious place. But you have to focus so carefully. Your time is limited. 
Mm -hmm. I still remember my teacher saying, if you've only got a few minutes, go through the bits which are tricky and don't play the whole thing through. Mm -hmm. So you have to cut corners. And in cutting corners, I had to navigate myself around this console. Where are things going? Because if, if a piston doesn't work, and I don't like pushing pistons, I don't often trust them, I have to know where the stops are. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're memorizing. And I've seen blind organists play uh, organs in France. My teacher's teacher was blind. And when you talk to a blind organist, they've got such an incredible awareness around um, when I see, was, was Andre Pagenaud at um, Bourges Cathedral. He says, J'ai une belle flute. Oh, sorry, I've got a beautiful flute here. And he puts his hand up there. He knows exactly the right spot because um, they're used to spatial things. And the organist's wife said to me, well, when you're eating, you don't look in the mirror to see where the spoon's going, do you? I said, no, you don't. It's like the organ with the pedals. You don't look down there. We try not to look down there. We know where they are. So spatially, a blind organist is very aware of what's around. And I've seen blind people get public transport on the way to university. This fellow would come on at one stop and he'd know exactly probably the way the bus was moving or just it just felt right or the, where the bus is turning. And they're very spatially aware. So you'd see them registering like this, 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 this. He actually heard me play some Cooper and he said, what do you want to do? 18th century style or 17th century? So I would register accordingly. He put his head right over the balcony. I thought, don't fall, please. <laughs> and he'd listen to the registrations. But a very funny story, the blind organist showing me up to the organ. He lo- would light the staircase up. And I got to the very top and I shut it. I thought, oh, my goodness. He said, it's nothing. I said, yeah, it's nothing. But I can see it. There's a big drop down there. I've got to be careful. <laughs> but, um, you have to find your way around the side of the, the, the nave and you, you've got to edge around there. Well, the blind person won't sit. The sheer drop is enormous. And those organs are very high up, especially if you're in a swallow's nest or Strasbourg, which is, I said, 100 stairs to get up there. Mm-hmm. Narbonne, 74 steps. Notre Dame, 64 steps. I can remember it all. Fantastic. <laughs> you are amazing storyteller, uh, Pastor. Have you ever... Um, uh, had an experience with people in your in your church uh, where you demonstrate the organ and and share those stories to him to them. I would presume those stories would really motivate them to know the organ even further and leave an uh, undying impression, right? Look, I, I do have people coming up to the loft and wanting to see the instrument, especially little children. I said, okay, have a look over here. Last Sunday, I had a blind girl come up to the organ. She was with one of the singers. So I said, okay, what are you going to do? Sit on the bench here. So she found her way to the bench. And I, she could hear the low notes, like the, the, the low vibrations of the 16 foot there. I said, right, when I'm playing, I can't see down there. I want you to put your feet forward. What can you feel there? And I said, a lot of people go to the organ. They see all this amount of uh, pipes around them. I said, don't look at that. Just look in front of you here. Forget that. Uh, using Bach's uh, term, the organ will play itself. Yes, it will. Just worry about what's here. This blind girl sat down. I said, okay, give me a hand. We'll find out what the stops are. So she got the spatial idea where things were and she got used to where the pedals were. The pedals are not such a difficult thing when you realise how to tell people to reference their spacing. Mm -hmm, There's mm -hmm. there's nothing to it, really. Of course, you get difficult pieces in two, three parts. Uh, You're doing um, the Bonnet Variation de Concert or these other difficult things like um, the the, the, uh, Langley solo pedal pieces. But Mm -hmm. to find a pedal note is no big deal. That's Mm -hmm. because you don't look there. 
doesn't mean it's difficult. You've done it for a long time. It becomes second nature. So I'm, I'm showing people, this is easy. Up, up the country, I was a consultant for a little pipe organ. I four stops. And I said to the woman who said, I can't play the organ. I said, sit down. Just listen to what I'm going to tell you. Put your feet here. Can you feel that? Oh, yes. I said, okay. You can feel twos and threes. Now, if you move your foot slightly forward, you're going to get from the sharps, you're going to get the naturals. And when you get that idea, they know what they're doing, that the fear goes. But I said, now you've got to practice it slowly and get used to the idea where it is. Mm -hmm. I guess... Uh... I guess finding the right pedals is uh, is okay when you are used to this instrument, right? When you practice it on it uh, for weeks. But um, let's say if you have to travel and play unfamiliar instrument, that oh, is yes. challenging. Oh, absolutely. Now, there's somewhere that you might be slightly out by one note. Yeah. Everything, of course, is relative. The French classical organs are the most notorious. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, the pedal compasses are not consistent. If you go to Udon, it's got two octaves of pedals, no bottom C sharp. Mm -hmm. And they're tiny short pedals, and they're for the toes, so the heel's basically up in the air. You can't use a heel at all. And um, I might say this to people who'd be surprised about these little pedals. I can play Bach trio sonatas on them because I've learned how to do it. I've performed a trio movement on it in Albi. I've done it at Saint-Pons-de-Tournière. I even used the canzona of Bach on a French classical organ using the cornet crumhorn and the pedal flute there. And these Parisian organists said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just Frenchifying this. I showed the same trick down at Saint-Maximum on Provence to Pierre Bardon, mm -hmm. who loved the idea. Then he was adding in the gros tiers, gros, gros nazar, and we really built it up to, it was a different way of looking at the same music. Well, Bach knew the French organ, of course, with de Grigny. And, of course, he wrote his famous pièce d'or, which goes to bottom B, which the French organs have. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he actually retuned something to get the, the bottom B on the other organs, but if you do that at Poitiers, it would work, but it would have to be on the reeds. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it makes you think, too, when he wrote that, what did he have in mind? It's, it's mm -hmm. sort of pointing towards that, a grand plongeur with the reeds and the pedal. Mm -hmm. But the pedal boards in French organs can be rather mysterious. Uh, you have sometimes almost three octaves. Um, now I've played one, let me see, 36 notes. Mm -hmm. oh, That's oh. a 17th century organ, bottom F to, to top D. Mm -hmm. One I've seen and not played, but I've heard is Santa Croix at Bordeaux, which is a Dombados organ, F to E. Wow, almost. You just get used to it. Exactly, almost three octaves. Almost, yeah. And again, you have stops which only work certain ways. So the, um, the 16, would go down to bottom A, and then you don't hear any more. The flues stop at bottom C. And you have to learn these little tricks, what stops where. And I suppose when you get to organs with divided registers, where do they divide? The German ones, are they C, C sharp, or, or B, C? Uh, I know Zilbermann's were B and C, but sometimes you get them C, C sharp. And the uh, Spanish organs also are different with division. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And there's one organ I played uh, up in French Flanders. It had divided sharps, not front and back, mm -hmm. but left and right side. And that was, I, it was really upsetting. I, I, I just tried it out. But to play a recital, am I hitting the D sharp side of it or the E flat side of it? Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. have to really be careful. And on French pedal boards too, 
they don't always look obviously going in a chromatic order. They go in some funny order. They might put color tapes there to say, oh, that's a bottom F there, or that's a bottom B flat. You have to learn what the convention is. So you, do, you have to do your homework. Mm -hmm. uh, even um, knowing where the manuals are, and the manuals don't always have full compass. They, they start perhaps in the middle, middle C, or they might be at a, a tenor F, depending on what the division is. Yes. Uh, right. It's it's really interesting uh, variety with uh, the global landscape of organ culture around the world. Yes. And if you travel a lot, you, you get to know these instruments. And um, your experience probably uh, is much more uh, um, sophisticated than uh, than if you only played Australian organs, right? Or English organs. Yes, uh, right? That's right. Much yes, worth it, well, right? See, I'd be sitting there thinking, all right, let's pretend I can hear a French sound. I'm not going to get it, but I can visualize it. But basically, you're getting used to where the fingers are and practicing getting the notes right. And then, right, when I go to play a French instrument, I have to adapt to that one. So you're mm. always adapting. I think that's the important thing. Um, even pianos, you might have styles and styles, but they're all going to sound different. They will have a different touch. The French classical organs are going to be lighter because of the, the suspended action. Mm -hmm. The keys are very short too. That's another factor. If I'm playing on, on a French classical organ, the higher the keyboard goes, the shorter the keys are. And sometimes the, the naturals, the front is only about, oh, two centimeters long. It's just like curling your fingers up. If you're playing clavichord, like, it, it's like that. You have to control that. And if you don't let the keys up right, they'll sort of flip up. You have to be careful how you release your keys. The sharps are tiny little stumps, mm -hmm. tiny. Mm -hmm. Right. And sometimes you can stretch a tenth, like Udon, you can hit your tenth. So when you see Kupran running a tenth in his left hand, it's not been difficult. The keys were narrower and you can actually do it. Yeah, and uh, the short octave also uh, has to be yeah. taken into consideration. Yeah. Yes, not many people come across short octaves. I have in my keyboard collection, I've got seven instruments altogether. Um, wow. One, one of my clavichords goes to short octave C, which is like a bottom E, and one of my spinets has a bottom bottom B, which stands for G. So you're doing a funny arrangement. I actually did a little video showing G, then to get the A is the front part of the C sharp, the B is the front part of the D sharp, and then you've got to go back to C, D, E, and then you go up the scale, and then C sharp or E flat into the back part. So I show them what they are. Mm -hmm. You have to think carefully. You can never go to these instruments and simply do a play a recital, you need to sit down and you've got to be very careful, one, to know what everything is, and also to be very aware of what the French classical recipes are. They are recipes because um, if you don't follow that, well, I suppose the English should certain extent as well, it won't sound right. Mm -hmm. right. I, I've seen people, for example, at home on the old English organs, down in Tasmania, it's like a, a little um, time warp there's an old English organ there and someone pulled out the open diapase and then added the principle uh, and it didn't sound right. I said, you know what, you're missing the stop diapase because you're missing the harmonics. The French, sorry, the English composers always stack these stops from the bottom to the top, no gaps. Mm -hmm. And you had to fill those harmonics in. The French ones, the colours were set and a lot of composers and a lot of people playing would actually write down the recipes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And... Even on some organs, you can see them. They've actually pasted on the organ. I've seen them before. Mm -hmm. And they're documents. So it's very well documented. Um, I don't know, Guy, you might change the registrations. And I went to one organ once 
at Osh, a very big instrument. And the organist there had mixtures with the reeds. And I said, oh gosh, that's not quite right. He says, well, I do what I like. I said, okay, fine. And he didn't like the French pedal board there. He said, oh, that's ridiculous. I said, that's not really, because it's actually got a way of playing. The French pedal boards help you articulate in a certain way. You can't play them like a normal German pedal. And if you want to play a trio sonata, well, you can do that, but you're articulating, you're spacing that. And the acoustic of the French churches allows you to do that. So you're not going to have big gaps in between. The acoustic will cushion that break. So you just decide what the break's going to be so it will sound sensible. If you're doing a counterthermos, uh, you're doing it at cadence points, or the most difficult pedal parts in the French classical repertoire are the Louis Couperin pieces. Mm -hmm. And I was shown by someone over there, Eric Boitier, who was a, he was a consultant, when he had an organ restored by, I think it was Quarin, he'd done this one, at Juvigny a 17th century organ. And I believe the case was in a church by, um, oh, I, I, I might be confused, uh, was it in a Cordelier, what's that in English? Um, a Franciscan church. Mm -hmm. And it was moved, a lot of organs were moved in the revolution because the monasteries were closed down and they found parish churches. But this one here had a very funny arrangement, bottom C, D, E, F, and then the sharps appeared. And then you had three manuals, the, the, the Risi had mute keys from middle C, from below middle C down. The pedal board was C to D. And I never played Louis Couperin. And I was playing something, he said, no, you don't do it this way. And I'm so glad because you're finding out this collective ideas and wisdom from these performers. I didn't realize that Louis Couperin was a polyphonic composer. See, a lot of French organs of the period, you couldn't couple down. Mm -hmm. This one, you have what they call a tiras mobile. So you could actually pull the, pull the coupler on. Whereas uh, later on, you have the Clico organs like Poitier. You know coupling the pedal. It's just a set stops, eight, four reeds or 16. That was it. This one here, he said, you need the tierces. I said, oh, okay. So I drew those. And you have the cromorn and then you have the um, corne. So when you're playing the pedal, the, the eight-foot flute would be too woofy sounding, not distinct. So you draw the tierces in, and that added that third line perfectly. So I actually performed that piece on a 17th-century style instrument, that charol, and I think it's probably on my YouTube somewhere. So you, if people look for it, they'll find it. So it's thanks to that technician, the, the, the organ consultant, who said, no, you do it this way. I thought, good. I'm glad I didn't know it all. It reminded me when I had my first harpsichord lesson. I played the harpsichord for many years before that. I came away from my first lesson saying, I know nothing about this instrument. And that was the best thing ever to happen to me, to know nothing and decide, right, what am I going to do? I have to find out about it. And then it gives you this inquiry, right, you've got something there. And this happened over years. I've been to France many, many times and I'm hearing players and I'm playing the instruments and it's all up here somewhere. And it's, it sort of it becomes one with you, you're one with it. You know what to do. Mm. I know you mentioned uh, you're playing uh, trio sonatas a few times. What fascinated you about uh, those wonderful pieces? The writing is exquisite. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like them. Uh, they are very complicated. Many an organist has come to grief in performance. There's a lot of hair tearing, I'm sure, going on there. But I, as I said before, um, these lovely pieces, I thought, let's play them on a French classical organ. I was really torturing myself. And it worked. Mm -hmm. um, Bach, you can play in many ways. And 
I just had to learn to articulate in a different way. But these movements um, on their own, just choose one or two moves. You don't play the whole sonata, just like the French classical pieces. I don't think you're intended to play all the pieces in one go. I've heard people play a whole French organ mass in one go without any of the singing, of course, and you need the singing to make it sensible. It's too much of a good thing. Yes. It's boring. You need to give variety. If I give a recital, and I don't do too many now, but I, when I do it, it's got to be like a, a banquet. Okay, you've got to have, you don't have all roast beef courses. You don't have all of whatever it is. You must have a mixture, but have the right quantity and a few sorbets in between to, to lift it up. So you're looking at colour, variety, interest. Mm -hmm. You start off with something which is going to arrest the crowd, but something you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And then you can sort of feel the audience around this. Okay, it's good. And I could, you know that feeling when everyone's behind you and then you go on and you're sort of soaring at the end there. Wonderful. And, uh, I like your, your comparison with, with a great meal. You have to have variety, right? Uh, you cannot only uh, eat soup, for example, all, all night long. You have to have a, a salad. Uh, you have to have fish, maybe dessert or something else. Wine, too, right? Yes. And I refer to musical sorbets, like little trifle piece, little pieces mm -hmm. uh, to make just lightness. And... and I also aim in concert programs to present works which are not known. We have everyone playing a lot of the same works or they'll play a whole uh, Vienne symphony. I don't see that as being very good unless you're playing for an organist group who wants to hear that. I play for the 99% of people who know nothing about it. I'd rather play for them mm -hmm. and let them discover things. I would look for composers who are obscure and have just gone by the side. So I'm looking at the IMSLP, Petruccio. Um, Music Library. Yes, and I see what other people do overseas and I'll have a correspondence with them. So where did you find a score? Mm -hmm. Now, I found a score, for example, which was the first solo organ pieces played on my 1882 organ at Mossman. It was in a different church originally in 1882. I found the original program in a newspaper I know who all the organists were. I know the entire program. And there was this composer, Valentin, and the suite in D. I thought, who on earth is that? So I wrote to the pipe organ group, one of the ones on, on the internet, and he says, oh, you're meaning this one. Mm -hmm. So he gave me the link, and people are very useful and helpful there. There's, there could be a lot of nasty things on Facebook and, and such, but then if you get the right people, there's a lot of um, camaraderie there and a lot of people helping each other there. I found the score. And I thought, good, I'm going to go to the church and play this because the organ program, Valentine's Suite in D, this has to be it. And it's only on two states. There's nothing wrong with playing manuals only. In fact, manuals only can be more difficult than other things. Uh, Two-part pieces, I think, are more difficult than anything else because there's nowhere to hide. There's, they're so exposed. And I played these five, these five or six pieces and I realised, well, the organist then would not be anything great. In the, in the countryside where this was, they may very well have been players of the harmonium or the reed organ. Mm -hmm. And the reed organ actually is a very serious instrument. People just toss it off saying, oh, this, this little pump organ. Uh, well, the French took it very seriously. Yes. Um, a lot of composers wrote for harmonium, right? Guillemot and also uh, probably Franck. Yes, Franck, the, the, the organist. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Vienna. Vienna. They are very different pieces. And even with the convention, the, the, the harmonium will do things that the pipe organ can't do. For example, the variation of the wind pressure, when you have those special devices, you've got to learn how to play the wind. Yes. And how, to, can, and how to pump. You can have a very interesting uh, expressive pumping uh, and uh, melody would be very uh, singable, right? In French uh, harmonium. Yes system and organist could learn a bit from that too yes we we'll hear the bolero the concert many times um, but on the pipe organ it sounds okay but you bring it to the harmonium you've got a totally different piece there mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, it, 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 so we have a different dimension and it's a pity some organists will look upon that as an inferior instrument it's a different instrument mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's better or worse, it's, it doesn't come into it, it's different and it's a different expression and to understand how that work is, you have to play it on the instrument for which it's intended. Even when you're playing old organs with a temperament, we're not always playing an equal temperament, which is mm -hmm. equally out of tune. If you play in a temperament, like on the harpsichord, there is something which sticks out, I thought the colour's different. When you hear a choir sing, they're, not, they're singing to pure uh, intervals, it's different to playing a tempered interval where everything's so very um, nondescript. I call it nondescript. It's not the right, the right word, but there's no tightness in there or something which will make you sit up. Oh, wow. You're mm -hmm. a mean tone instrument and you've got a totally different story altogether. Do you have a harmonium at home? No, I don't. Uh -huh. I've played various. The, the, the most type uh, regular one we'd see would be the American. You've got to distinguish. There's the American organ, mm -hmm. which... The, where the reeds are actually sucked by the wind. The French call them harmonium, which is probably the correct word for those instruments because the, the wind is blown. There's two different methods there. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of the ones where they suck like Esty, the American organ. Um, and again, it, it, it's, um, you're looking at divided stops, you're looking at uh, different devices and the way you pump. And also there's an expression lever um, for swelling and bringing on the whole organ. A lot of control there. Mm -hmm. But the French ones are particularly tricky, if you, and they're very sensitive to where they're, they're pedaled. Mm -hmm. It takes time to master them, really. Mm -hmm. Yes, like playing the clavichord compared to the harpsichord. Mm -hmm. What C.P. Bach said, that a good clavichordist makes a very good harpsichordist, he's quite right. Mm -hmm. um, even tuning, the clavichord were quite tricky. I tuned my, one of my harpsichords the other day, and it was very easy. The clavichord, you've got to be careful. When you hit the note, it's going to be even throughout. Otherwise, you're going to be sharpening or flattening and... It takes a lot of control and it'd be very good for the organ pieces as well too. A lot of organ teachers I hear for classical repertoire teach them on a pedal clavichord. Yes. I haven't played one of those. Yes. And the touch, if you get it wrong, it's going to sound awful. So what it kind really changes. What kind of instrument do you have at home, uh, Pastor? Could you, could okay, you I've got seven. a picture? Yes, I've got, well actually they're in, they're in different houses, but um, I've got a grand piano, an English grand. I have um, a five-octave Neupert spinet. Mm -hmm. I have a, a spinet after um, anonymous build of 1708 from the Royal Academy of Music London. That's in the Holiday House. That's one of my nicest instruments, and it's mm -hmm. in a beautiful acoustic. One single register of strings, and it's very unforgiving to play. All right, but then it's one of my nicest ones. Then I've got three clavichords. I've got a short octave 
four octave, well, it's four octave, but short octave in the left hand, uh, Swedish 17th century. A 1784, well, after 1784, Hubert, a double fretted. And I've got my large uh, 65 note that goes F to A, Lindholm copy from 1787. And that was made by Australian builder Mark Noble. It's his last instrument. I actually twisted his arm and he said, okay, I'll make you one. And um, I've had people over in America who've heard the real Lindholms. They said it is so similar. So hats off to that fellow who wrote it. You'll see that on my YouTube collection. It was my last recording I made of the, the Kelma Ketama Musicum uh, Sixth Suite. Mm -hmm. Ketaman in Latin means competition. It also means contest or combat. It was like a combat because I was fighting. It, was, it took me a while to do it and I wasn't happy until I got this right. And I was reading a manuscript which was put together by a fellow in England. Mm -hmm. And um, he was very happy how I did it. There was a, a German colleague, Andre Zappa, whose wife is a harpsichord um, decorator. He recorded the first four and he said, I didn't do five and six. They didn't sound good in the harpsichord. I said, okay, I will do them on the clavichord. They work perfectly. And I've been fired up now. I'm going to do the first four on clavichord. So I'll be the first one to ever done on clavichord. So I don't always stick to the organ. I do a lot of other things. But the clavichord is crucial in keyboard touch because it requires such a fine uh, weight and you can't force it. You have to be very careful. Otherwise, you get a very bad sound. Mm -hmm. I agree. Clavichord is uh, indeed very helpful for developing good uh, early uh, keyboard technique and organ technique too. And if you have uh, access to pedal clavichord, it's even better because lots of German organists, composers back in the day practiced uh, on pedal clavichords because it was too cold in churches during winter time. I'd also call it the budget version because you didn't have to pay someone to pump the organ. You have, you know, mm -hmm. Yes, yes, you, you have to be friends with, with the Kalkand who pumps uh, the, the, yes. the fellows, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, it's, so uh, it's really an amazing story you were sharing, uh, um, Pastor. When you get back from your uh, trip uh, to Europe, what you will be playing uh, back home? Well, I'll look at more Kellner on that clavichord, but on the organ front, I'm actually preparing for a concert with an Edwardian theme. That's as in Edward the Edward the Seventh, um, around 1910. I recently had access to a 1912 organ. Mm -hmm. It's an Australian instrument, which is sort of in the English in English vein. It has nothing above four foot, and some organists might think, "Oh, that's boring," um, but you can do a lot with these. You have to discover what repertoire is. So I'm going back to prepare a concert with a very good singer who plays piano and a trumpeter. Mm -hmm. And the piece of the music will be around the English period 1910, or at least hearkening back to that period. I don't play a huge amount of English music. I don't really understand it myself, but I'm making myself do it. Um, so it, it will work nicely. And this church where the organ is, they don't use it for their services because no one plays the organ, but they play the piano. They very kindly gave me the keys to the church and I'm allowed to go and play it when I like. So I have access to different instruments. I have that Australian built instrument. I have my English 1882 organ. I have a 1929 Moller, which is American. Yeah. I also have access to an 1890 Puget French organ. And I was the assistant consultant for that one. That's a very interesting one. French um, romantic, only 12 stops, but 
you know, four of them are reeds. You can imagine what the French do. It's, it's an incredible instrument for 12 stops. I also have a neoclassical organ of 20 stops by uh, Le Tourneau, mm -hmm. his opus two. James has a later one of that same make, a bigger instrument. Mm -hmm. um, so Wonderful. So will you be sharing some of those videos for our contest too? Oh, yes. I'll, I'll have to see what I can work on, but when, mm -hmm. when I get back, which is the end of this month uh, uh, or coming month, I'll have to make sure that concert program is right mm -hmm. and then I can concentrate on other things there. But um, if I'm doing something for that concert, I can record it, say, for the competition because I'll be working on it. But then I want to work on other works uh, from 19th century French repertoire. Um, I'm also planning another CD on, on a French at French instruments from 1890. This, uh, and I'm trying to think, what have I done over the last 12 years on that instrument where I could actually make a program? And I got a friend who's a composer who's wanting to record, to, to write something. Because uh, I play pieces that friends write. So I do play contemporary. So I go from 17th, basically, right up to contemporary time. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Sort of, I can do what I like now. Right. When you are traveling, are you bringing your music with you? I have not got one book of music on me whatsoever. <laughs> I've got no playing. Um, I've decided, this was a rather hard decision, but I don't want to do any more overseas recitals. It's far too much work. I would rather take, if I have music on me, or just sit there and play the organ and see what the organ tells me. A very well-known organ builder and consultant in America called Barbara Owen said to me at a dinner once, and this is prior to my playing the organ in uh, Poitiers Cathedral, she said, you'll cry when you play it. I, well, actually, I cried afterwards. I had to get the keys back. The, the organist gave me the back to his house to give his keys back. That, I've written this all down. People can read the stories in the, in the organ journals. But um, what was I saying? Um, she told me the sentence, and I've never forgotten it. An organ will tell you how to play it. Yeah. We don't tell the organ how to work this out. The organ's got a voice. Mm -hmm. So what does, this, what does this organ tell me that I should note in producing its voice to the maximum? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to constrain that. The organ is telling me to do, not me telling it. That's a wonderful piece of advice for organists who want to play more French instruments or other historical instruments that you have played. Uh, before we close uh, uh, our conversation, uh, do you have a final piece of advice uh, besides this? Um, basically, this, I used to say to people and students, be different. Mm -hmm. Don't be ordinary. Be extraordinary. It could be simple. Follow your dreams there. Well, um, I'm doing what I want and, and the dream still is going on. And your limitation is only as far as you make it. You could be unlimited, basically. You'll never stop learning. Um, there's always going to be something new. And it'd be a terrible thing if we knew it all now because we'd never get any better. So we keep looking for new things. And... And in playing, one is communicating. One is using one's voice, but in an instrument there. So it's an extension there. So live and breathe it. Enjoy what you're doing. And um, keep looking for new things. Excellent advice, um, Pastor. Where could our listeners find more of your work online? 
Right, I have a YouTube channel and it's very simple. It's T-O-R-M-U-S, Tormus, and with the number one after it. And when you go to YouTube, you'll see over a thousand recordings there. We'll have organ recordings. I've got some of the organs from France I've mentioned before. I've got uh, local organs in, in Australia. I have harpsichord, I've got clavichord, spinet. There might be even the occasional piano piece. I'm, I don't really play the piano much now, but there's one where I'm playing a French work, which was for piano, and I transcribed it by, at site for organ. It was by Guillaume Lecoeur, who died age 24. And I discovered that he had written so much music they had his complete CD set. I got through, I think it was Amazon. There are at least seven or eight CDs of this fellow who died at the age of 24. And these pieces for piano, one of them actually fitted the organ perfectly. So I'm looking, I'm reinventing things. And no one's heard of Lecoeur before. Um, I go to other composers I'd see on IMSLP. I thought, who's that one there? Let me see what that is all about. No one's played that before. Let me try that. So again, be different. Be different. Don't and be frightened to experiment. In today's global world, when you can discover new things uh, which are just click away, it's really interesting to explore new boundaries and to have new experiences every day. Thank you so much. Yes, there's one other bit of advice too, and I had this from the nurse of a late great aunt of mine. I'd be recording these YouTube clips. And I know you get some critics there, but then the critics never show how it's done. They always want to criticize other people. I ignore that. She said to me, the world is full of destruction. Create. I said, she's quite right. So make something beautiful. It can be something beauty. So there's so much destruction around. Let's do the opposite. If you're going to break things up. Let's make things. Mm -hmm. Create. Yes, good advice. Uh, organists uh, has, have always been composers and improvisers too uh, uh, in various countries, in various traditions, historical periods. And I remember Charles Tulnemir uh, writing that uh, an organist who cannot improvise is just half an organist, right? I've been pushed into the seat when I was down in uh, Saint Raphael at Notre Dame de la Victoire. A friend of mine, uh, Michel Collin, who's a well-known organist and teacher down there, the mass is about to start, and he gestured, sit and sit. I said, okay, well, what did I do? I, I had to improvise something, so I, I drew out a grand plan, jeu, and I thought, it just happened. I, I didn't have time to get nervous about it, so I thought, okay, it should go this way, and, this, and then and you put your canter firm stuff in. It, if you do it slowly, it'll come out, and at communion, I played something with the flute harmonique. We had a beautiful flute harmonique, and he had the lovely uh, voix celeste and the gombe on the récit. And the uh, priest said, "Vous um, venez d'écouter cette improvisation ravissante." Oh, sorry, going to English. Um, you've just heard this ravishing improvisation. I thought, oh, did I do that? It was advertising my concert the next day. But you have to be in the situation, in a liturgical situation, to play an improvisation. I did ask the organist Johann Wexel when he was out I said would you improvise I've got to be in a liturgical situation to do that you can't turn it on like that you must have the right atmosphere the right feeling and then it'll come out mm -hmm. 
improvisations like that, I wouldn't call myself an improviser. I, I might try and experiment there. I would not dare call that. I could not do a fugue to save myself. Though I stood next to Olivia Atri, he says, I'm going to do a fugue and start a bark for voices. I thought, how sickening. I can't do that. <laughs> but it's incredible. And I tried to write it down. He said, no, here it is. And he wrote in my notebook, this is the subject. I saw him do the, the exposition, the development, the recapitulation. I thought, how do I do this? But they've got this way of, training themselves he can recall an improvisation i can't do that i, I can simply do something there oh this will work here mm -hmm. so i suppose we all have different ways of doing it we all yeah. approach it different ways but we are creating something and i said basically in the notes to an organ recital by uh, vincent dubois the sound is for the is for those privileged to be there at that particular moment and it will dissolve into the air it's gone mm -hmm. never to be brought back again yeah it's a moment it's, a, it's like it's like a moment you can't get that back something else will happen next time it's like a snowflake you're not going to get the same snowflake the same the same um, dimension they're like snowflakes but they're all different you'll mm -hmm. never get the same one twice and you know what i think uh, uh, pastor never try to be like um, uh, olivier latrie try to be like uh, pastor, pastor. De La Sala. Yeah. you can admire the people but as I said you know, to students, I said, why do you copy this, this, this? Well, you know, you could say to a student, don't try to be this person. That one's already taken. Yeah. That was taken. So why copy that? Don't clone yourself. Be original. I said, be original and be different. Original is very tricky world uh, in today's day and age everything has been tried before and what even original means so but maybe we could think of being authentic our true selves that would be enough i think yes yes don't clone yourself you can use people as models and then you take it a step further and make it your own mm -hmm. Excellent advice again. Thank you so much, Pastor, for being a guest on this conversation. I'm really delighted to, to be able to share this uh, interview with our con uh, community from 89 countries from around the world. Thousands of organists will have the possibility of listening to us. So again, wonderful. Have a nice trip uh, uh, to Europe and uh, I cannot uh, wait uh, to uh, to hear what you will create when you come back next. Good. I'll make sure I practice, otherwise I'll scare away the audiences. So <laughs> do my homework. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Venus. Thank you. This blog is supported by Total Organist, the most comprehensive organ training program online, where you will find courses for every area of organ playing, including technique, practice, sight reading, repertoire playing, hymn playing, improvisation, composition, music theory and harmony, with hundreds of scores and thousands of exercises. Here is what some of the students are saying. Hugh writes, the sight reading course has helped me tremendously. Thank you very much for SS courses and all your help. Robert writes, I found the fingerings, registration ideas and general comments to be excellent. John writes, I have found your download very helpful. It was really excellent. I have watched some of your teaching videos and when I read your instructions. I try to imagine you are there teaching me. You may feel disappointed that I am two three days behind, but I am a slow learner and I have committed to taking the time to get it right as you say. 
but whoever night my wife commented that she had never heard me play such a detailed melody in the left hand so well. My left hand is generally poor. Robert writes, It has been a great pleasure in my life of having discovered your courses and material as well as the YouTube work of recordings. You have a calm and pleasant way of teaching. Around writes, Hi Vida thank you guys. What a wonderful response to my email note to you. You've got me right, and I feel you understand my level of playing. Yes, at home and lucky that I have an organ for that reason. I am paying attention to this, and I am going to try this haha no longer secret model. Yes, and I love Caesar Frank too. What is very nice about your blog podcast is that Osha and Vidas are like a Socratic dialogue, and by bouncing things off of each other, so much more information comes out and is expressed. Your comments contain a wealth of information and understanding. I really appreciate this. It is very inspiring and will keep us moving forward. Would you like to receive the same or even better results that our students are getting? If so, join them at organduo.lt slash total dash organist. And of course, you will get the first month free too. You can cancel anytime. Also, if you haven't yet subscribed to receive free updates of this blog, make sure you do that at organduo.lt. By subscribing, you will also receive free video, how to master any organ composition and... 10-day organ playing mini course. This was Vidas and Osha from Secrets of Organ Playing. And remember, when you practice, miracles happen.